good afternoon and welcome to from where we are stories of news and culture through the lens of usc and southern california i'm sudarshan ramabhadran coming to you live from studio b in usc's annenberg media center and i'm taylor mills it's monday october 18th on today's show usc's new guest policy annenberg racking up some awards and how miss jojo siwa is doing at dancing with the stars all that and more from where we are So Taylor why don't you why don't we begin with this why don't you tell me about your freshman experience of living on campus All right <laughs> let's flash back to 2019 the before times I was living it up in McCarthy dormitory I met some of my closest friends who I'm still close with today in my dorm in the dining hall as just a wee little freshman You know stories unite people tell us one specific story or maybe a memory Well <laughs> Most can't be discussed on the show, but I will say my dorm was the first place I hosted a function of my own and that was definitely special. You were speaking of 2019, those times were great. We are in 2021, now in the midst of a pandemic. In your view, what do you think students should do while in campus housing, especially with the no guest policy? Well, it's funny you mention it and this leads into our next story. It's the Monday after fall break and some students are returning to their dorms after a long weekend away. It's also the first day these on-campus residents can now guest students in from other buildings. Or at least they can do this officially now. Kennedy Zack has the story. Starting today, students living in on-campus housing are now able to bring fellow students into their dorm buildings. Because of COVID-19, before today, residents were prohibited from hosting students who didn't live in the same building as them. Freshman Andrew Nguyen says this policy made it difficult to socialize with people outside of his specific dorm building. Living in the dorms uh, without any guests allowed was definitely a little bit more difficult to meet people at first, uh, considering um, most of the people that I interacted with and met were primarily just from my floor alone. The new guest policy only applies to other USC students, meaning people outside of the Trojan community are still unable to enter dorm buildings. Residents and guests must be compliant with USC's COVID-19 guidelines. They will need to show their Trojan checks along with their USC ID cards to enter dorm buildings. Nguyen feels that the previous policy was counterintuitive considering students were able to interact in other capacities. As in the dining halls, you get to like talk and sit close in close quarters with a lot of people from other um other like residential buildings. So, I find it a little bit strange or like kind of like contrasting that um we can't bring in guests into our building. Sophomore Alicia Sony points out the many welcome events USC put on at the beginning of the year. Considering that USC hosted large events such as an overcrowded welcome concert, Sony finds it strange that they did not allow guests in the dorms. To see those events taking place but then to also see that they're not allowing or at least up until this point they weren't allowing other USC residents who like may not live in your building but are also following the same precautions like Trojan check and getting tested and everything why they're not allowed to come into my dorm that definitely seems a little contradictory Despite the previous guest policy some students found ways to sneak in guests Karina Hironas is a freshman living in Burncrant More so yeah I did sneak a couple people in um it wasn't too difficult but Uh, I was still kind of nervous because if you get caught, you know, you could get in trouble. But yeah, I mean, it would definitely make me feel more comfortable having people over and stuff. Now that I could do it right. 
The new policy limits each resident to two guests. This is the same restriction that was placed on students living in dorms before the pandemic. The difference now is that when guests are present, everyone is required to wear a mask. Students in residential halls seem to be very excited to finally be able to guest in their friends without breaking any rules. Sophomore Alicia Sony isn't wasting any time taking advantage of the new policy. Like I already invited some friends over later today um, uh, to hang out and like do a little study session. So yeah, I'm definitely going to be using it. Adhering to the COVID-19 guidelines is essential for students to maintain the new guest policy. Students who violate these rules may get their guest privileges revoked. For Annenberg Media, I'm Kennedy Zach. As a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, stable child care organizations have been an elusive find for parents all across the U.S. USC graduate students with children likewise have experienced woes in trying to find a program that makes sense for them. Sam Reno has the story. As USC graduate student parents seek to navigate their education, many struggle in managing their professional lives and their personal lives. Children are a priority as parents put time and energy into caring for their families even during their studies. Thus, daycare and parental support programs are now essential to their lifestyle. Jenna Lubet is a grad student at USC's Marshall School of Business. She and her husband have two children. Holding her baby in her arms, she explained that the past year and a half has been particularly difficult in terms of finding a daycare system that respected the peril of the pandemic. What we were terrified of is our our toddler, um, Philomena, being in, in daycare, bringing COVID home with an infant. We were like, all right, we don't really trust you to enforce your sick policies. Um, because you, you don't seem to be is enforcing them. Like my, you know, our daughter's still coming home sick multiple times. You're not doing any due diligence to check your own workers. Like you're not, um, you're not requiring them to get tested. And so we just don't trust that things are going to be okay. Even so, several students feel there needs to be an even stronger support system from the university for student parents. One solution Jenna Lubet proposes is allowing parents to have the option of studying remotely. I think students, USC students that are parents should always, always, always have an option to attend a class remotely. Um, And that is just more about like inclusivity and equitability more than anything else. Others believe that there should be a centralized place for graduate student parents to ask questions as the current support system has done little to aid them considering their circumstances. Brandon McFarland is a fifth-year PhD candidate at the Keck School of Medicine campus. He started a Facebook group for graduate student parents. There's no localized area that I that graduate student parents can go and be like, okay, here's my question about this, here's the answer. Here's my question about this, here's the answer. And like all these different, there's not like a one office that can answer all these questions, like what I can or can't do, or give me a list of what hospitals are within our insurance for for uh, for people to give birth at, like give me a list of pediatricians that are okay, like just simple things like that, that becomes like so burdensome. And then like when people are pregnant on top of trying to figure out all this out, I mean, it's awful. As their lives become increasingly busy with education, work, and growing families, graduate student parents at USC face the daunting task of balancing it all. For the sake of their academic and parental endeavors, they look to the university to improve their programs and aid these young parents in this stage of their lives. For Annenberg Media, I'm Sam Reno.
After more than a year of canceled practices and tournaments due to COVID-19, USC club sports are eager to practice on campus. However, the ever-changing protocols are causing frustrations among players as many teams still face uncertainties in their season. Lara Prakash has more. USC Recreational Sports and Student Affairs have implemented strict COVID-19 guidelines for club teams, especially the USC club swim team. Although members are vaccinated and have not had a positive COVID-19 test this semester, their practices have been canceled and the season schedule is unclear. The sudden shift in protocol prompted frustrations among members as to how USC is handling its safety protocol. The guidelines are inconsistent, which led the team to cancel all practices and confused members, said senior Ryan Cantrell. Fortunately, like with the USC restrictions, we were originally practicing in the dive pool, but that's when that was restricted to seven people per practice, which is, unfortunately is not conducive to a team environment at all, and it, we can't even pay our dues like that. So we had to cancel practice for a month while we tried to figure that situation out. Club Swim returned to practice one month later with a changed practice schedule. The team had to reduce practices from four times a week to twice a week. Cantrell feels that the team's needs were not being heard by the Recreational Club Council, or RCC. Annenberg Radio reached out to RCC for comment, but did not hear back. It didn't feel like we were being met in the middle, and we were kind of just told no, and they weren't hearing any of the problems that we were having, like the fact that we would, we couldn't charge dues if only seven people came to practice, or we didn't have a pool at all, and we weren't being heard. And so it felt like the pool was its own separate entity that wasn't even being addressed. Initial restrictions only allowed 20 members per practice, but weeks later, members continued to be confused as to why swim was more restricted than other club teams. Senior team member Katie Thompson feels that these restrictions were harsh, especially since swimming is not a contact sport. I have classes where we're meeting with tons of people in classrooms and I'm sitting very close to people. So I'm like, if I can go to class, and be inside with all these people. I don't know why I can't swim outside in a pool with like one other person in my lane. USC club tennis president is Albert Tan. He heard about the restrictions placed on the swim team and found it unfortunate. Club tennis's protocol includes wearing masks during practice, showing Trojan check, and having the RCC check in during practice. In the end, I think RCC, I guess, could have been a little bit more relaxed because uh, I know like at football games and other USC events, they don't even check for masks. They don't check Trojan checks or whatever. But then in club sports, they, they do all of that. So I think it's a weird dynamic. Things seem to be looking up as several club teams, such as swim, will begin to compete later this semester. The club is now allowed to practice on Sundays, but still only with a limited number of swimmers. For Annenberg Media, I'm Laura Prakash. Air pollution, an issue that the people of Los Angeles are no stranger to. It has become a concept normalized through the increased concentration of people and their cars, as well as the growth of industry in the area. But what specific health effects might this have? One such possibility is its connection to Alzheimer's disease and memory loss. Annenberg Media's Ethan Huang has the story. USC School of Gerontology researchers have studied the links between pollution and old age memory loss for many years. Professor Caleb Finch, an expert on Alzheimer's disease and dementia, is on this team of collaborators. So we're uh, 
colleagues, we teach together, and we thought that we should combine, uh, give a short publication summarizing our findings, which both indicate that air pollution uh, approaches uh, in public health are succeeding and with potentially less uh, impact on risks of uh, reducing the risks of dementia. Finch explains that air with a form of pollution stemming from PM2.5 particles is linked with Alzheimer's disease and other forms of memory loss. They found that in the last few years, there's a decrease in these particles. These findings are especially relevant for residents of Los Angeles and USC students as air pollution and smog is an ongoing health concern given gasoline emissions and seasonal fires in the regions around the city. Well, the USC is close to major freeways. That's a fact of life. So we are exposed to the uh, particles from those freeways. And then, of course, if there are uh, fires uh, in the hills near Los Angeles, that has happened in the last year or two. Uh, that combines with the, that smoke combines uh, with the air particles. Finch reaffirms that this is ongoing research. He and his team are continuing to dig deeper into this issue as Finch focuses on the experimental side of the research and his colleagues on the societal implications. At this point, no conclusions can be drawn as to what is the cause of this phenomenon. Well, we simply don't know. There's no good answer. And the chemical composition uh, of the air particles does not tell us uh, anything that, uh, obvious that, that has changed. Um, the uh, density of air particles, PM 2.5, has slightly decreased during this time. So it's a puzzle. We don't have a good answer to understand it. And sometimes scientists have to say, we just don't know. Professor Finch will continue his contributions to studying air pollution and its effects on health. But this remains a part of a greater discussion on sustainability, climate change, and global health rooted deeply in political and economic policy. For Anberg Media, I'm Ethan Huang. The Santa Ana winds roared around Southern California area last Monday. I remember it well. Thousands of residents were left without electricity as companies performed power outages to reduce the risk of fires. Mauricio Murillo has more on the story. All of Southern California experienced high winds, but Santa Barbara County, the Grapevine, and the Antelope Valley, to name a few, felt the strongest. Dr. Scott Epstein, the program supervisor at South Coast Air Quality Management District, said these winds brought one of the most intense dust events we've seen in over a decade. So the National Weather Service has forecasted some Santa Ana winds this week but we're not expecting to see the extremely high levels of dust that we saw on Monday night. Uh, these large-scale dust events are really rare in the LA area. Power companies like Pacific Gas and Electric, Southern California Edison, have alarmed their users that there could be power outages in areas they deem as high risk. Diane Castro, Senior Advisor of Media Relations at Southern California Edison, explains why program power outages are needed. These actually, they're called public safety power shutoffs, and they're meant to keep the community safe. So what happens if conditions indicate that fire danger is elevated, then we may temporarily shut off power to some customers who live in areas with a high risk of wildfires. 
These outages don't happen without notice. The companies are monitoring the weather conditions, and if a specific area is at risk, they will notify the users. Castro said that as of October 12th, 30 Edison users in LA County suffered a public safety power shutoff outage, and close to 9,000 of them were under consideration in the areas of Kern, Los Angeles, and Ventura. About two days ahead of time, we send the initial notifications to customers, and then one day ahead of time, we send updated notifications, including any updated timing information. We also provide our customers with some resources for them to, you know, they can they can charge their batteries, they can pick up light snacks, they can have water. We send out community crew vehicles, and we also have community resource centers for anybody experiencing a a PSPS. Diane Castro is aware of the effects that these power outages have over their users. We absolutely realize that these shutoffs significantly impact our customers' daily lives and create hardships for them and for our communities. So we make every attempt to reduce the number of customers that need to be impacted and to minimize the length of the outage. With all that said, the typical restoration times range from three to eight hours after the circuit is cleared for inspection. Regardless of intentional power outages, Deanna Contreras, PG&E Marketing and Communication spokesperson, believes that her users should be prepared for outages that are produced by natural causes. We want students to really take a look around their dorm rooms or their off-campus living situation and see what requires power. Like, do they have backup battery system for their computer? If they have a test coming up or if they have a lot of homework they need to do, what do they need to plan and prepare to get through um, without being without power for about 48 hours? For Annenberg Media, I'm Mauricio Murillo. Okay, I'm Sudarshan Ramabhadra and I'm glad uh, you're with us for From Where We Are. And I'm Taylor Mills. It is 18 minutes past the hour. Coming up, a closer look into small businesses and the vaccine mandate. Stay with us. It might be a hassle for you to carry around vaccine cards, but for small businesses, even demanding proof of vaccination from customers is a big problem. Doa Anjumjum talked to small business owners in LA about their frustrations on the new vaccine mandate. Whether you're dining at bars or restaurants, getting your nails done, or hitting the gym, the LA City Council voted that you will need your vaccination cards for entry starting November 4th. Some, like Yancy Quinones, say that vaccination cards are easy to fake. It's just a little piece of paper. It's nothing special on it. Doesn't have any any halogens uh, on it. Nothing like that. It's just like the vaccine card. Anyone can make one on the computer and print it out. Even if you're not vaccinated, you could just print one out and make it. And here you go. It's a joke. Quinones is the co-owner of Antigua Coffee Roasters on Figueroa. He believes the mandate is going to harm small businesses like his own. People don't sit in here. They don't hang out in here anymore. It's not It's not that same vibe. So no one's really interacting. So people are following the rules as far as our customer base. 
So when I heard about it, I was kind of concerned. I said, well, you know, that's not going to help out small businesses at all. Quinones also doesn't know how he and his co-owner will enforce the rule in November. How is the city going to enforce it? Are they going to use the LAPD? Who, who, who's going to enforce it? No one's going to enforce it. I mean, do we have to hire a doorman? Do we have to bring a doorman, put him on the payroll? Sherry Ray Russell agrees. She is the owner of Peace Yoga Gallery in downtown. For her customers, it was already challenging enough to practice yoga with masks on. My business was the busiest yoga studio in downtown Los Angeles and the most successful. And they came in and told me I had to close doors. And I've lost almost everything. For Russell's business, the new vaccine restriction is a breaking point. There are a lot of us that are still standing, but you can walk down the street and they've, they've crushed everything. Because of the danger it poses to small businesses, Russell says she is against the vaccine mandate and will fight to continue giving her community a space to exercise their freedom. I am going to fight it. I will not close my doors. They can come arrest me and find me. I will not, not stop doing what I'm doing. And I'll take it to the Supreme Court. I will fight for Los Angeles because that's what we need right now. The mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti, thinks he is also fighting for the city's well-being. That's why he and the city council signed the vaccine mandate earlier this month. He said in a statement, quote, Vaccinating more Angelinos is our only way out of this pandemic, and we must do everything in our power to keep pushing those numbers up. These new rules will encourage more people to get the shot and make businesses safer for workers and customers so that we can save more lives better protect the vulnerable, and make our communities even safer as we fight this pandemic. At a time when the world is still figuring out how to protect people against COVID and get back to normal, LA's vaccine mandate remains controversial. For Annenberg Media, I'm Dua Anjum. Things are looking a little different this season on Dancing with the Stars. For the first time ever since the show aired in 2005, the program features an all-female dance duo. With Jojo Siwa taking center stage, Jesse Cooper talks with the former dance competition reality star and USC alum Lennon Torres about what this moment means for the dance community. Half a decade ago, Jojo Siwa emerged as a glittery, bow-wearing diva that beat to the sound of her own drum. Since her start on the famous reality show, Dance Moms, Siwa has grown into a personal brand. Among her endeavors include the newly released movie and upcoming world tour. At the moment, the superstar is making history, returning to her dance competition roots as the first-ever same-sex dance partnership on the hit TV series, Dancing with the Stars. Earlier this year, Jojo came out to the world as a member of the LGBTQ community by posting a TikTok lip-singing to Lady Gaga's Born This Way that immediately went viral. For the first time in the show's history, Siwa was given the choice of having a female dance partner. The answer was obviously yes. I have a chance right now to make history and to break down a barrier, and there's nothing that I would rather do than that. 
Pro dancer Jenna Johnson has the honor of dancing alongside Siwa and the two are making waves. So I just felt like this was meant to be, honestly, yeah. and the whole process has been so natural, so smooth. Yeah. Yeah. And now I'm like, do I even remember how to dance with a guy? Like, what is that? <laughs> the pair's performance from week two to the song Rain On Me garnered over 1.2 million views in a week, more than any other Dancing with the Stars duo. As the weeks go on, JoJo is bringing more and more star power to the table, making the Mirabal Trophy that much closer. More important than a big shiny trophy is the cultural changes Siwa and Johnson are sharing with the dance community. From its inception, ballroom dance has been highly gendered. The male usually takes the lead as the female is instructed to follow. Lennon Torres agrees. She's an alum of USC's Kaufman School of Dance and has encountered hurdles surrounding her own gender presentation in this industry. The dance industry, although a lot more welcoming um, than a lot of industries, can be really toxic because of the emphasis on, you know, the individual's body and the roles that they're dancing and the expectations that different audience members have for the people on stage. Obviously, there are a lot of barriers that have to be broken and many questions that have to be answered. For one, who leads? What shoes should be worn? And how do you hold each other? The answers to those and other questions come with time and practice, practice, practice. But the questions related to gender and sexual presentation don't stop at television broadcasts. They need to span every studio in this country. Torres founded Continuum Community to do just that. The Kaufman alum says after a lot of reworking curriculum, USC Kaufman is doing a really remarkable job of trying to figure out a way to respect the past and respect the traditions um, and respect the way historically things have been done, but also pushing forward and figuring out a way to make it a safe space for as many people as possible. Not only is change happening on the big screen, it's right in our backyard. Though it may have taken decades for change to happen, it is important to notice that we, the younger generation, are acting as the catalyst for change and the movement needs to keep going. You know, they're just going to watch it every Monday night and just see a same-sex couple on there. And a lot of the time, it's not even the focal point of conversation. It's just, it is what it is. I couldn't say it better myself. Having JoJo's presence, bedazzled to the nines, wearing whatever makes her comfortable, whether it's a pair of pants or a studded skirt, will inevitably change the perceptions of the dance world. For Annenberg Media, I'm Jesse Cooper. <laughs> That theme music means it's time for Ampersand. Sudarshan, have you ever been to a marionette show? No, but I've seen puppetry in India as a young child. Is that something similar? You know, we used to have these fascinating puppet shows to explain stories to us as children. That was maneuvered by humans. Well, I had Disney Pixar, so <laughs> there's something new in LA that I might maybe want to try. The Bob Baker Marionette Theater, LA's oldest children's theater company and a designated cultural and historical landmark, has just begun reopening shows after shutting down for the better part of a year and a half due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Ampersand's Trevor Kefauver has the story. The Bob Baker Marionette Theater Company doesn't look like much on the outside. Sitting in a community theater on York Boulevard in Eagle Rock, its white facade and unassuming nature doesn't do justice to the wonders that I beheld on my first visit ever to the theater to catch their Halloween spooktacular show. As you walk into the lobby, the colors of red and pink overwhelm you. 
The bright lights and huge red curtain of the theater are reminiscent of a vaudeville theater from the 1930s, complete with a warm-up organ player pounding away on a giant, white, oversized organ that looks like a toy. Kids are running around the theater, barely able to contain their excitement, until the lights go down and the show starts. For Alex Evans, executive director and head puppeteer, the theater is enjoying a bittersweet moment as this is the first time they've had live audiences in their new theater since the pandemic started. Evans's history with the theater is storied, performing with the company for 15 years. So I, I was 19, I was in school looking for like um, special effects and like animatronics, like no background in marionettes or puppets whatsoever. And I Googled Los Angeles puppets and Bob Baker Marionette Theater came up and I saw a show and was blown away. Evans spoke to Baker after the show and was subsequently taken on by him, who trained him in the art of marionette theater. After Baker's passing in 2014 at the age of 90, Evans became the concepts and idea man, ushering the theater into a new era. He has come up with bold ideas to keep the theater afloat, such as crafting and creating a Little Nas X puppet after the cultural icon asked if he could host his EP release party at the theater for his hit song, Old Town Road. This happens like a lot at the theater. We just get random kind of like people that show up and like, hey, you want to do this Little Nas X thing? And we also made one of Harry Styles and it was like these, it's it's just exciting. I mean, mm -hmm. it feels, it, it feels great. It's unique. There's never a dull moment here. Creating puppets is a labor of love for Evans. On average, it takes 300 hours to create a new marionette puppet. But the work pays off for him when he finally gets to perform with one of the new puppets, disappearing into his creation completely. But Evans and the theater ran into dire financial straits when they had to shut down in 2020 and pivot to other marketing materials. But luckily, the LA community banded together to help save the beloved company. So we did a big crowdfunding, um, whatever you call it, uh, <laughs> ask, and and we were just shocked that we raised um, about $360,000 like in the course of like two weeks, which was like mind-blowing. We've never raised that much money before or anywhere close to it. Saved by the generous hearts of Los Angeles citizens, the theater is looking forward to entertaining audiences of all ages for generations to come. I wouldn't say we forgot about a live audience, but like when we reopened, it was like, oh, wow, that's what it's like to kind of like get a clap at the end of a number. Just the idea that there's so many people in the room that are happy at the end of the show, like you kind of want to like say hi and talk to everybody and you can't. There's like too much like there's too much like joy in the room to kind of address address <laughs> it all. And that kind of like the yeah, you just can't keep up with the, the amount of excitement. I must admit, I was skeptical at first about the quality of a marionette theater show, but when I saw a Frankenstein puppet physically remove his head during a rendition of Putting on the Ritz, Whoa, okay. I sat there captivated, just as enthralled as the little kids were, making me feel young again at heart. For Sand Radio, I'm Trevor Keefather. Before we go, one last thing. We 
don't usually brag like this, but over the last weekend, the Southern California Journalism Awards took place and Annenberg Media did very well. Here's Aidan Handry with a recap. It's a Saturday night in the ballroom of the Millennium Biltmore Hotel in downtown LA. Tables full of LA's best journalists are dressed in semi-formal attire. This is the 63rd annual SoCal Journalism Awards, hosted by the LA Press Club. LA Times won big, KCET too. Also winning big, USC's own Annenberg Media. <laughs> By the end of the evening, Annenberg student journalists walked away with eight awards and were runner-ups for 11 more. They won in the student media categories and in categories where professional journalists compete. Multiple back-to-back wins made sure that Annenberg's presence is known in LA's journalism community. In the audience that night was Professor Gordon Stables, director of the School of Journalism at Annenberg. He says he could barely keep up with live-tweeting the school streak of wins as they were announced. USC Annenberg tends to do really well in the Press Club Awards in a a range of different categories. It changes a little bit year to year, but this was a really strong showing, even by our standards, where, you know, the overwhelming majority of student awards, Annenberg Media won or USC Annenberg won, and then there were so many opportunities where either won or we placed in the professional category. So it was really a banner night overall. Most of the work recognized was produced from home during the pandemic, after the Annenberg Media Center had to shut down and radically change the production process. The fact that so many of the pieces were recognized, I think, is even more remarkable given the circumstance of how they were produced. One of these award-winning pieces was by student journalist Eileen Chen. She wrote about how international students from China dealt with remote classwork during the pandemic. Prior to this story, I was always hesitant in terms of reporting my own community because I don't know how close is too close when I report my own community. I have to deal with my own like fault lines and biases, but I also want to make sure I represent my community like appropriately. I want these stories to be visible and celebrated. On Saturday night, she was not at all expecting to win. It was pretty surreal and I mean, people capture my reaction video and I don't even dare to look at it because I was genuinely so happy but honestly more surprised than anything because it was my first ever feature. A night like this helps young journalists like Eileen to get recognized for their work and have it seen and heard by professionals. Professor Gordon Stables is excited about the opportunities winning awards creates for Annenberg students. It's a nice way to tell the professional community, here's the next generation of really remarkable professionals. You should be looking to hire them. You should be looking to work with them. So, you know, I I think it's important to recognize the awards don't make the work more meaningful, but the awards are a nice way to give the students the spotlight and the recognition that they deserve. Big shout out to the LA Press Club. And if you want to watch, read, or listen to the award-winning work of Annenberg journalists, check out uscannenbergmedia.com. For Annenberg Media, I'm Aidan Henry. And that's all we have time for on today's From Where We Are. Celine Mengiola and Val Diaz produced today's show. Val Diaz runs our soundboard and Derek Redbro composed our theme music. We are also streaming live on KXSC. Catch them at kxsc.org slash listen. And we're on YouTube at Annenberg Radio News. Special thanks to Joyce Kim for running our live stream. Don't forget to subscribe to From Where We Are on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. 
and look for us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Annenberg Media. If you're looking for more news, be sure to download Annie, Annenberg's news app. I am Sudarshan Ramabhadran. And I'm Taylor Mills. From all of us at Annenberg Radio, wherever you are, we hope you'll join us again for From From Where Where We We Are. Are.